welcome to Sunflower Living, a podcast that believes that life is always worth living. I'm Abile. And I'm Linky. Welcome to our working philosophies on life and living with mental illness. Before we get started, a note. We are not mental health professionals. All opinions expressed in this podcast are our own. Welcome back, everybody. And now on this episode is probably one of the most interesting people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And I'm excited for you to meet as well. So Linda Lani, please introduce yourself. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Linda Lani. I am a strategist based in Joburg. Uh, I often say that uh, what people do for a living is some of the least interesting things you can learn about them. So in keeping up with that spirit, I'm going to go ahead and talk about things that I'm interested in. Recently, and I think I shared this with you, Abby, um, I've become interested in uh, rationality. So I found this interesting community online called um, Less Wrong, where it's a bunch of bloggers that are trying to improve their reasoning and decision-making skills. And that appealed to me as a person who cares about pursuing truth and seeing um, reality less blurry than I see it currently. So I've been very interested in that. Um, I skate, I watch a lot of anime, I'm a reader, and I listen to music. Um, so that's me on a personal level. And thank you for your very generous introduction. I, ha- I hope that I-, I live up to the reputation. Oh, 100%. I mean, I feel like just in those few seconds, we've captured so much of <laughs> what has almost prompted both of us to extend this invitation to you. So just on like a general basis, I wanted to find out from you and And again, one of the most fascinating people I've ever met, and you're very open and very sort of candid about your own personal experiences with mental illness and mental illness as, you know, a black Zulu man in a South African context. So I just wanted to find out from you, like, what has that been like almost, you know, from, let's say, when you sort of had an inkling of something wasn't quite right and, you know, almost coming to a point of acceptance with it? Mm. Huh. Let me think about that for a second. I'm just trying to figure out where the right place to start this is. Um, but with many things, I guess we can start with my childhood. You know, I grew up in KZN on a, in a very small town on the outskirts of Ladysmith called Colenso. And it was sort of hybrid. It, parts of it were very rural and then parts of it were very township-like. Mm-hmm. But I did uh, grow up around, uh, it was a very traditional community where, you know, expectations of what it means to be um, as Zulu, of what it means to be a man and a woman were like very clearly defined and then people are not allowed to, to cross, to cross those, those barriers and those lines. And growing up, I was a very anxious child. You know, I was scared of almost everything. I was scared of the dark. I was afraid of lightning. I was afraid of interacting with strangers. You know, I was very timid and awkward and very anxious. And because of that, I think there was just a, an understanding that as a person, I was too weird and not man enough, especially man enough to be a Zulu, a, a proud Zulu boy who would grow up to be a proud Zulu man. Uh, but I did not mind that much because for the most part, I was just living inside my brain. I watched more cartoons. Um, than anyone else that I knew. Um, And I was just always preoccupied um, in oblivion, actually. I was very oblivious as a child. I was not reflective at all. I was happy to just go along with what people were doing and just pursuing my interests, like watching cartoons, playing video games. It was just me. And funny enough, I did not pay much attention to the things that were, were being said. 
uh, about me because I think I was able to block most of it out, out of my head. And ironically, now that I'm older, I'm way more susceptible to those norms and that pushback from society than I was as a child. I don't know why uh, I've become more sensitive to, to all that, but I think it's just because now I'm more open to, as an adult, to what people are saying and, and how they think about me. I care a lot about my reputation, um, which I think is a weakness for me. I think if you want to be a balanced, strong person who can pursue their independence and freedom, you ought to just mostly and almost entirely, I would say, rely on your own mind and what you want to pursue, regardless of how people interpret it. Um, I don't know if that gets you what you need. It, it more than enough. I was going to ask you, you know, you, we talk about your mental health um, struggle if i can call it that could mm-hmm. you share with us when that was or what that looks like for you mm. um just for our listeners right so as i said i have and maybe this is a weird way to characterize it but i have always been afraid as a person um and i think as an adult i've found ways to cope with it and, and deal with it better but you know when i when i say afraid i think that the more appropriate word there is anxious you know um and i think when i was younger it was easy to just make sense of it because like they would just write it off as cowardice you know uh, as, as a zulu boy you need to display traits like bravery um and and strength and i did not you know you could not find, find an ounce of strength and bravery in me i was very timid as, I, as i've already stated so that's always been there and I think there was no way for me to really understand it at the level um, that I do now, at the very sophisticated level of it could be a mental issue because, no, there wasn't language that I had access to. Um, life was just very simple and there was just a flattening and in a simplified way of, of viewing the world in the community where I grew up. So I only had an idea of what it was really when I was much older, when I, I actually left varsity. Um, and started working, and I had a burnout where I had my first, my first anxiety attack. And I had a, a very hard year when I was having, a, I would say, about 10 anxiety attacks, give or take, in a week. And that was crippling, and, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, wait, maybe I would wish it on my worst enemy. You know, people should be punished for, for mischief. But, um, you know, that really opened my mind. And I went and saw a psychiatrist. And I feel like this is a good point to say that I have not been diagnosed with depression. I did go and see a psychiatrist. And their philosophy on therapy was that they don't diagnose people with anything. They just try to understand what is going on in your head because they, they do see that a lot of things that people go through have been pathologized and they wanted to re- resist the temptation to um, diagnose people right off the bat. So I saw them, um, I would say, for about six months and we we're just working through my issues and, and where all of it comes from. And as is typical for everyone, some of it is genetic and then some of it is just, you know, your environment and, and your, um, the pressures that you face. And um, yeah, that has been my journey. And right now where I am with it is I have learned to cope better with it. I don't think that what causes it um, is anything that can't be resolved, you know. So what I'm doing instead is just trying to find ways to, to cope with it. And I actually um, wrote down a question that I wanted to ask you guys about this particular point, but I'm happy to get to that later when you guys are just done with your bit. Okay. 
I wanted to just jump in there and I can't wait for your question, but to just say, I like this idea of not overdiagnosing. I think that yeah. happens a lot. And I think we love to put labels on things. And as much as that can be helpful, it can also be detrimental to people's well-being. On your end, what do you think has been the most successful coping, coping mechanism that you've used in the time that you have had since you saw the psychiatrist? Mm. So the most effective one, if not helpful, was just withdrawing into apathy. For I would about I would say about a year and a half, I I just wired myself to care very little about anything. It got to a point where I was realizing that I remember having a thought and asking myself, if my mother passed away today, would that affect me? And and, and that's when I knew that I was in a very dangerous place because I wasn't moved by anything. It seemed like I wasn't allowing myself to care about anything and everyone. I was just completely shut off. Um, and I was unfeeling, you know, I was just a blob of, of gray that is unfeeling and unmoved by anything. And that was very effective in that, you know, I could ward off the anxiety and I could ward off the invulnerability and all those, those weak spots. And not you know, saying weak is the wrong way to think about it. And all those spots that are sensitive, you know, to, to collapsing under pressure. And when I had the thought, I said to myself, I need to open myself up again. I need to let people in. This is no way to live for anyone. You know, I saw myself just heading down a very dangerous path and I did open up myself again. And I did start uh, uh, almost immediately struggling with anxiety again, with doubt and on all those negative emotions that are associated with, um, with anxiety. And when I realized that I need to find other ways to cope, um, Coincidentally, it's at the, around that time I picked up skating and I did that very obsessively. You know, everywhere I went, I would have my skateboard and I, I would ride it. I would ride it to work. I would ride it after work. And it just occupied my mind. And it does a lot to actually, you know, like it forces you to focus on what you're doing. You need to be very deliberate about it. So it occupies almost your, your, your entire mind. And I picked up skateboarding and I reconnected with my hobbies again. You know, I, I bought a gaming console. And again, if you do that, to a certain level, it does, you know, occupy every corner of your mind. So I would say in a, in a simple um, concept, my way of coping is escapism, which I think it works, it's, it's very effective. But then once you are brought back into the world, you still need to confront whatever it is that you need to confront. Um, and I think um, I do need to just find a, a better way to cope with it even when I'm not, um, again, this is a poem of, of, of characterizing it, distracted by the things that I love doing. I like that. I like that because I think I'm also very much an escapist, but then at times I, I tend to find that like as of late, I try and like sit in the discomfort, like as like, I'm just like, I, I, I don't want to do it. I don't, but it, it really does help. I think sometimes to be able to almost take a break from mm. the, that's what I'm looking for from the stress and then go back to it and be like, okay, what are we going to do? Would you say then that you need to still work through some of your anxiety in order to get to a place where you're more um, comfortable with it and less likely to look for escapism to deal with it? Oh, definitely. And I think that there'll never be a time where 
I have it under control, you know, like barring something like uh, a miracle cure where maybe a chip gets implanted in your brain and, you know, it rewires how your brain processes information and, and rewires the, those neural networks and connections, you know, barring that, I don't think there'll ever be a time when I feel like I have this under control. There was a time when for a long time I wasn't anxious and I was quite happy. And one day, boom, uh, I fell from, from whatever high that I was in. And it was, way, it was way worse that I had forgotten what it feels like and I had forgotten how to cope with it then than any other time in the past. You know, and that made me realize that you know, there's, no, there's no magic bullet that is going to solve this in one um, swift motion. It is getting better gradually at it. Like exercising a muscle, you know, it gets stronger um, the more you exercise it. So that's, why, that's how I'm starting to think about anxiety. It's I need to find ways to help me not only cope, but deal with it and resolve some of what is going on. Mm -hmm. And that is not something that happens quickly. And it's something that, you know, sometimes you take five steps forward and then you take four steps back and you need to be okay with that, you know, and you need to understand that it's just getting better gradually over time. And uh, I do think that when I'm 80, if I live that long, I will still be dealing with this uh, at some level. You know, I think what I can appreciate in, you know, your honesty in saying that, because I think when it comes to being a man, there is a certain expectation that, no, you've got everything under control. You have everything, mm. you know, on lock. And to say that, no, these are very vulnerable spaces that I've been in is huge. And I don't think mm. even I think as women or just as people, sometimes we're not able to say that, oh, I'm doing this compulsively because I need to get away from whatever it is in my life that mm. is just freaking me out. Out. And mm. I, I, I don't know if you feel this way, because I feel this way sometimes, is that sometimes I can almost identify how, you know, my childhood correlates with how I behave as an adult. Like I'm still very awkward, although a little bit more boisterous and more vocal in how mm. I express myself. So do you see those patterns in your own life, for example, you know, in, in how you said in the beginning that you were not the typical brave, courageous Zulu boy? Mm. In many ways, I, I am glad that I wasn't that strong, brave Zulu man because, you know, um, I love my people, but let's not, you know, ignore the problems that my people have. Taxi ranks are full of Zulu men. And uh, there was an incident a couple of years ago, which I think was one of the worst displays of the masculinity in the male Zulu culture where they saw a girl wearing, wearing a mini skirt and they started harassing her, um, you know, touching her, trying to take off her skirt. And something like that, you know, could happen. And for some Zulu men, they could walk away from it feeling righteous, feeling like that's the right thing they should have done, feeling like they were fixing society. And because, you know, I was sort of like excluded from that world in a way, I was able to observe it and not be too embedded in the culture. Because, you know, as much as personal responsibility is a thing, I do understand that as a human being, in some ways, you can't be better than your culture. That's why when you look at history, you find excellent people who were compassionate and smart in some context, but you find that they were misogynistic and they were racist, you know. Um, you know, so there is at some level, you being a product of your time, you being a product of your culture, and you cannot be better than the world that creates you. And I resist the temptation that I would have been the exception. I just feel like I was lucky to be excluded from that world and I could assess what was happening more soberly. And it left me open to, you know, 
being compassionate and being open to what else is happening there instead of just being embedded in this culture. That is very self-reinforcing. Actually, when you're in this culture, it's like being in a cult. It's really hard to see anything that is happening outside you. And, you know, we just like label other people as the other and we have the us and then we, you know, explain away whatever they are doing in ways that are not very charitable and everything that we do with a sense of, of, of superiority and, and moral um, authority, you know, and, and because I was the outlier, I was protected from that a bit. Um, and I am glad because I think my progressive views, I think, come mostly from that, for me, having to figure it out on my own without taking too much what was fed to me. What do you think is one thing you've learned about yourself through your experience? My experience of depression, particularly. Well, particularly your anxiety, because, I mean, it's a, it doesn't go away. But what is one thing you've learned about yourself within that experience? Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. Because I think it has brought a lot of lessons. Um, and, and one of, of the lessons that it brought is just an understanding of how profoundly one can suffer in their own head. That is something that is very easy to miss, particularly if you have not had the experience. Uh, there, is, there is an anguish so pure and so crystallized that it's very hard to explain to another person. And, and it made me more compassionate. You know, It made me realize that there are things that other people are going through that are easy for me to ignore and overlook and marginalize that are so profound um, and you, in ways that you wouldn't even believe. So that experience did uh, give me that, which is why I said at the beginning that I wouldn't wish this was my worst enemy. Um, and then I, make, I made that, that joke about it in the end, but I, it's really a hard thing to deal with. And as funny as it sounds, uh, because like some people have, have looked at people with anxiety and depression and thought of them weak, you know, without... Uh, huge amounts of, of resilience you would not be able to put up with the anguish that goes through your mind, that goes through your emotions when you are faced with a panic attack, for example. When you're faced with a panic attack, you feel like uh, death is the next thing that's going to happen to you. You can mm -hmm. hardly breathe. Your chest is compressed. You're sweating. You can't stop moving. And it's just pure suffering. And it's all just happening in your mind. It's all just happening in your psyche. So it made me realize that I, I'm, I'm strong as a person. And I would say, you know, from coming from a culture that values strength, that I'm stronger than a lot of men who think that they are stronger than me um, in ways that are more socially accepted. I did see myself as like, okay, maybe I do have a lot of strength in me and a lot of resilience in me. So it taught me that about myself. And it taught me the compassion. And uh, what other important lesson have I learned from from my journey. Um, and I think one thing, it just, it got me thinking, yeah, I think this is an extension of the compassion and empathy that I mentioned earlier, but it got me thinking way more about other people. When I was younger, I was, I was very arrogant and I was very uncaring and I was willing to say hurtful things to other people, given that they were true. Uh, I still believe that to some extent, but now I'm very, conscious about my truths and how they land on other people and that sometimes you can just keep quiet simply say nothing than hurt other people necessarily mm. um and and that was a valuable lesson you know i i like i just want to almost just uh piggyback off of the 
the, the, the want to mock and almost put someone down because I find that that's very prevalent in, you know, each of our cultures or like just in, you know, a black African context, there's almost like this need to almost like mock the weakness out of you. And somehow Mm. that almost makes it worse in certain instances. Like I've seen it in my own life where there are still things that my family will make fun of me for that I'm still very sensitive about, but I can't display that outwards because Mm. then it's, oh Mm. no, you're being sensitive or Mm -hmm. you're being, uh, it's just a joke, relax. And it's like, no, but I feel like to a certain degree, we have to extend not only that compassion to ourselves, but also to the people who don't really understand and may never Mm. understand, you know, to say that, we somehow, despite our anguish, despite our pain, despite the suffering, especially when it comes to things like panic attacks, which I'm glad, for example, I haven't had in ages. But mm. when, when I think back to that kind of anguish and pain and uncertainty, it's so difficult to explain it to someone. So I mm. don't know if you mm. found that there's almost a resistance. And you know, this goes to you too, Links, that there is a resistance within the people that we know in our personal lives who may not necessarily be as open as we are to speaking about you know, our challenges with mental health or whatever ailment it is. They're just not really, there's a resistance to it. And I'm not sure how you would break that down sometimes. Mm. Mm. Um, so I think, the compassion that I'm describing has to also be extended to people who don't understand. Um, You know, I have seen the temptation in myself to really just find it, actually, I don't know, demonize is the wrong word. There should be a word that I'm using that is weaker than that. But demonize is the word that I'm going to use right now because it's the one that comes to mind. Demonize people that speak in awful ways about depression. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to forget that they, they really, really don't understand. They truly, truly don't understand. Um, they should. They have a responsibility to go out there and, and, and learn and educate themselves and find out how they can relate better to people who are dealing with mental illnesses. But I, I, I am willing to accept that on some level, there will always be a gap between us because they could never appreciate what I'm feeling. I've always found that people who have experienced depression can um, support me. They can relate to me way better than someone who hasn't you know Mm. and you know I can't blame people for not being there for me in ways that are perfect or being there for me imperfectly because they don't understand you know if I I were in their shoes I would act in the exact same way I don't know what thing in me would be able to give me the clarity of understanding that would make me show up perfectly and meaningfully for someone if I hadn't experienced this so I am willing to be much more you know forgiving to to people um, with the caveat that they also educate themselves. So I think we should meet each other halfway mm-hmm. um, because I think once you have positioned yourself with the, as a victim, you know, if we're looking at this and I'm the one who's suffering, I'm the victim there, we get away with saying things that are hurtful to other people, things that are distractive because, you know, um, compassion is on our side. And I have been cautioning myself to not let that, you know, take me, take over me too much. Mm-hmm. I've got so much to think about. you speak also to the stigma Mm. around mental health and mental illness. And I think a lot of the time when we think about, um, as you say, when you are criticized and you are, you know, said to be weak as a result Mm. of anything, whether that's um, 
mental health, whether that's just a trait that you have that people find is weak. I think a lot of the time, like you say, we have to have compassion for those people mm-hmm. because they don't get it because they're speaking from their frame of reference mm-hmm. and we can be critical of them. We can turn out to the people, to be the people who are more judgmental. And I think mm-hmm. we have to be cautious about that yeah. as mm-hmm. to not do what we are. We are not wanting to happen to us. Mm. That, that is excellent. You have just synthesized what I was trying to explain so briefly. <laughs> Thank you. Question for us. Yes, you did. I want to know. I did. I actually had three questions. I'll bring it on. I'm excited. (laughs) I hope I can answer them. (laughs) One of them is around something that we have already discussed, you know, because one of the first things that come to mind when I think about my struggle with mental health is um, the ways in which I have to mask it to other people. Mm. It is sometimes I feel like I need to protect my family from worrying about me too much. Um, you know, from thinking that the next moment, you know, I would have, I would have taken my own life or something like that. But I still feel like there is a mask that I have to put on sometimes so that the people around me can understand me better, you know, maybe to mitigate the stigma that I can face. And I was just wondering, um, so my way that I was doing that for the longest time was the apathy, you know, I was just like, I could switch it on very easily, just not caring and tell myself, I'm not going to care what anyone says and what anyone thinks and, you know, they would protect me and shield me. So what are some of the, you know, effective ways that you mask your depression and what are some of the ways that you think are unhelpful and, and how easy do you find it to, to navigate those two states? If indeed you do try to navigate your, your to mask your depression, sorry. I mean, I think for me, I mask it very often with humor and being louder than I actually am. That's a way mm. that I tend to almost exhibit myself but sometimes Mm. it's almost like I I feel the need especially in crowded places or even in like you know when we have ceremonies at home to just almost like fade into the background but I can't entirely do that because then it will be my family hosting so there's almost like a certain presentation that I have to bring to the fold so I tend Mm. to either mask it with humor be a little bit louder than I usually be which then in turn exhausts me a bit more because I'm quite an introvert and then I also just let other people talk to me or rather talk at me sometimes Mm -hmm. if I can put it that way like almost put the entire impetus not to be cruel or anything but to just almost hold it together especially if I'm Mm. having a bad day or I've had a bad couple of weeks that's how I tend to, to, to mask my depression or even, you know, the two together, depression and anxiety, one affecting the other. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and before we move on to, to Linky, and do you feel like that is, you are betraying yourself by doing that? Or do you feel like in order to function in the society such as ours, you just need to do a level of that and there's no dishonesty and self-betrayal there? You know, what's so funny is that for years, I used to think that, you know, everyone every single person I interacted with had a right to a piece of my person, my entirety. Mm -hmm. And then as I've grown Mm -hmm. older and as I've come into my individuality, as well as who I am within a society, especially because, you know, Linky and I often discuss, you know, like social contracts. I've had to accept that 
you know, I'm not always going to be able to show up as myself entirely because mm. there are certain repercussions for that. As in, I would have made someone uncomfortable, thus I don't get this job or however else. There's, there's like a, a fear that I would have put into someone and I don't want to do that. So mm. no, I don't feel like I'm betraying myself. Rather, I feel like it's a necessity within whatever context I'm in to almost protect myself and that other person. I like that. I think you're right about protecting yourself because mm. I think a lot of the time when we have to share um, or be so open about what's plaguing us, we are um, in turn violating our personal space mm. and our personal um, ability to say, well, I don't, I don't need to talk about that. Yeah. So in terms of masking it, I'm not, I'm not very good at masking. So mm-hmm. I don't think I play in that realm. However, I've learned that as a high functioning um, depressive that I show up when I need to show up and mm-hmm. it doesn't take anything away from me. It just means that in that moment, I'm able to say, this is not important. Like this is not, this is not the focus. Just like you would, um, if you got hurt and, and, and it was someone else's day, you wouldn't play it up to, to distract from that person and, and put the focus on you. You would focus mm. on what's important. Yeah. Mm. And so that's how I see it. I see it that we all afford each other the grace, um, the compassion. We all afford each other that space to be in the hopes that we will receive the same. And so when I think about my mental illness, I don't think about it so much as, as a label that is negative, but it's something that's just a part of me. A diabetic doesn't have to be apologetic about being a diabetic and they need to disclose it at certain times and at other times they don't need to disclose it. Mm. So that's how I see it, like any other chronic illness. I don't think there's ever a need to really broadcast these things, but when it, you know, you find yourself in a situation where you know that, you know, this will come up regardless of what it is you try to do, or, you know, you're walking into a situation that is triggering, for example, it is fair to, I think, reach out to someone whether you may know them that well or not and say that, look, this might come up and I just need, if I duck out or if I leave, that's why I've left. Not because, you know, I'm being disrespectful. I think I'm, you know, sort of above the, the, the grade, you know, in front of like whatever's happening, whether it's a party or whatever else. But sometimes it is necessary to, you know, put it out there, but it never has to be a show, you know? And Linky, your, your comment about diabetics actually takes me to the, the next question that I had. And I was very curious to know how you guys think about the, the role of personal responsibility in depression. And uh, going back to that example of a diabetic, I do actually think that, you know, some of the factors that lead to diabetes are genetic, but also we eat burgers and we eat sugar and we don't exercise. And, and that contributes a lot to mm to someone ending up being a diabetic um, and coming back to, to depression, to depression, some of it you can't help. And, and that is obvious to me. Some of it is uh, a sickness and I, I, I am helpless in some ways, but some of it you can actually help. And, and how should I take personal responsibility for my mental health? Um, you know, how do I separate the, that stuff that is genetics? And, and, and I know I'm a lazy as a person. I don't want to lie. I'm very lazy. And sometimes, you know, it's confusing to me which at some time, at some points, whether 
what I'm facing is laziness uh, or depression and anxiety or a mixture of the two and how I should untangle it and how I should show up um, during those moments. How do you guys think about personal responsibility in all this? I'll take that one. Yeah. You know, I think um, routine is big. Mm -hmm. I don't like routine. It's just not my happy space. But when we are honest with ourselves, if we are able to set in place certain measures, uh, certain consistencies within our routine, you find that you're better able to distinguish whether it is you Mm -hmm. or whether it is the disease coming to play at that moment. And I think um, personal responsibility is huge. I think we cannot at all ever say, well, it was the disease, it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. That's just making excuses. I think there's a way in which that happens as well. We've talked about, you know, I don't know, maybe just to piggyback on what Abby was saying. If we talk about social anxiety, for one, which can really be crippling, it's okay to walk away. It's okay to leave an event and say, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. This is, this is not what I signed up for. It's not okay to just walk out and not tell anyone. It's okay to go and tell the host, um, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I have to leave right now. I will call you, whatever yeah. it is mm-hmm. that you, you need to do thereafter. Mm-hmm. But when we ghost, that's when we have a problem. That's mm-hmm. when we're being irresponsible. Um, when you talking about laziness and I, you know, I have issues with the word lazy, but never mind that right now, there are times when we don't want to do things and that's okay. It's okay to say, I don't want to do this thing right now. I can do that another time. Mm -hmm. Um, however, the crippling debilitating feelings of depression that limit you from getting out of bed, Mm -hmm. you know what that is. You know how that feels. It's very evident. And so, you know, in that space, you're able to say, okay, I, I, I need a mental health day. I, I, I really need a mental health day. But like you say, there are certain things you should be doing. If you're keeping up with your therapy, if therapy is your thing, you're taking your meds regularly. If you're on meds, you are using the tools in your toolbox. If you're doing that regularly and consistently, then you know that you are on the path to managing your mental illness in a better, more positive way. However, when you're not doing that, yes, then it starts to run you. Mm -hmm. Then the disease takes over and you no longer have any semblance of control or any semblance of what's happening and time passes by and you don't notice that it's happening. Yeah. Mm. I want to say to that, now switching to the other side, um, there are times when I haven't been able to get out of bed for days and it was obvious what I'm going through. And during those days, I could not pop a pill in my mouth even if I wanted to, Um, especially because in some ways I was taking Silift 20 milligrams for about three years and I just got myself off it. in some ways, when I did take the pill, it did make me feel worse, you know. So there are times when there's everything that I could do to help myself, I wouldn't be able to do it even if I wanted to, you know. So that's why I think that in some ways, yes, when you are able, unable to get out of bed, it's clear what is going on. And in other ways, you know, there are instances where you're like, actually, I have the energy to do this, you know, I'm fine. I, there's nothing big going on, so I need to just get off my ass and do what I need to do. There are also those clear cases. But there, there's a murkiness, there's a, there's a line in between where, you know, you're just in the middle of the spectrum 
And that's the point that I'm very interested in and how you learn to recognize when you're in the center of it between where you can help it and between where you can't help it. Or is that something that I imagine in my head that doesn't um, exist in reality? Mm. I think it's different for everyone. I think it, it, it really is. And I think as you, as you learn to understand yourself more, you'll understand what those motivators are. You'll understand mm. what's happening in that middle space, in that murky space. Um, you know, I have several years on you guys. Mm. And so I can say that for me, it came with age. It came with time mm. that I was able to say, oh, okay, actually, that was an immaturity. That was me actually just deciding that I don't want to do this. And I mm. understand that for a lot of it, the disease is, you know, the, the disorder itself is speaking to you. I, I, mm. You know, I, don't, I know that sounds a little bit kooky, but it's like it is influencing you so much that you've lost agency. And I think mm. that's where that murkiness mm. starts to come in because you're like, Oh, okay, I'm, I'm not able to get out of bed, but I can if I really need to, but I don't want to at the same time. So which is it? Which, which do I blame today? And mm. I think my advice, and again, we talk about this, this is all about our personal experience. This is not to diagnose or, or um, to be taken as, as um, medical advice, but it's mm. to push through. Because we see so much more from our resilience when we're able to say, hey, you know what? I did feel this way. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to take the meds. I could have, but I did, I, I just, that's just not the space that I'm in right now. And you push through and you do it anyway. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, mm. to, it's to this space that we're in right now where everyone is saying, do it afraid. That's mm. part of it. It, mm -hmm. it, it is. It's, it's, it's really having the courage to say, Maybe this is uncomfortable, but this is an uncomfortable that I need to take on right now because I know that on the other side, I'm going to come out of it better. Yeah. Mm. And it kind of reminds me of, um, I remember when you know, I knew Linky and she, I can't remember what grade this was in. I think this was grade 10 or something. And, you know, you were going off to your class. I was going off somewhere else and I was just in such a panic, but it was so visible on my face. So I was literally having a panic attack outwardly, but it was really just a cry for help. I can categorize it as that. And I remember mm. you saying to me specifically, and I always go back to this moment whenever I just feel like I'm falling apart and you were like, stop performing. And I'm like, mm. That's what it is. Yeah. I was like, that's kind of how I take responsibility in my own life sometimes where it's like, okay, yes, I do not want to do this. Yes, I do not want to get up. I don't want to see a person. I just want to have my curtains drawn and just lie here until I feel some semblance of better. Um, but sometimes I've got to push through that. Sometimes I do have to suck it down. Sometimes I do have to like quietly, you know, almost mouth or motion the screaming of what it is that is going on, which is at most times, terrifying at best. Mm. Um, but it's somehow, you know, like, like you just said, to do it afraid, to do it not at my best, because that's just not going to happen for me sometimes. It's every single day. And it's not predictable. You can't almost like look into a crystal ball and be like, okay, on Thursday, I'm going to be completely immobile. And, you know, I'll just work through everything else then. So that Thursday is my mental health day. No, that's not how that works. So you know, mm. I think we, we have two specific episodes, which I 
that like to reference, which is taking responsibility where we talk about, you know, when you do know what it is or, you know, when you're still kind of coming to grips with it, what it is you can do from our perspective and our experiences. Um, and as well as resilience to say that it doesn't matter how small, it's the fact that you did it that, you know, mm. makes all the difference, especially in my opinion and my experience. And I think, you know, I can look at a younger, more unstable me and call it unstable and say that I wasn't mm. okay, not even in the slightest and say, I am better than that. And certain things, you know, like Linky says, she's, she has some years on us, but certain things have come with age, have come with experience and have come from just talking to people, you know, like my relationship with you, Linda Lani, is like, you know, we are able to have these very in-depth, very, um, sort of deep conversations that talk to not just our person, but the things that we struggle with in our personhood. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, those, those are my questions. And um, <laughs> looking towards the end, I just want to say that I, I have a strong belief that without a certain level of openness and honesty, it is really hard to do anything worthwhile. And mm. I appreciate that you guys were honest and open. Um, and yeah, yeah, that is like, it's, it's a pleasure to me that I found that you guys are willing to interact at that level, which is not a mode that a lot of people are in everyday life. Well, thank you. I think, you know, you've brought a lot of insight. I think there's an experience that we all have, which is different. And, and, and people, for the most part, like to lump everyone together. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we do each other a disservice because we then, you know, we, ha we want to do this one size fits all. Yeah. And mm -hmm. when you come at it with a different experience, with a different perspective, we're all able to learn. And when we learn mm -hmm. from each other, we then say, oh, actually, you know what? I, I didn't think about it that way. Or, or I needed to, to hear that today because I have been um, doing it wrong <laughs> or, mm. you know, or there's another way that I could be trying. And so, you know, you being here brings us that it's, 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 it's more than just, um, it's more than just your story, which matters so much. It's, it's a sharing. It's, it's mm. a, it's a paying it forward, which we need so much right now. Exactly. So Linda Lani, thank you so much for not just being our guest, but also being the third co-host somehow in some aspects <laughs> of this episode. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug that you'd like our audience to reach out to? Um, not necessarily, but I do have a podcast that I co-host called uh, Radio Browser, where we discuss ideas with the world's leading thinker. Um, the episodes that come to mind that I should recommend is one that we did with Peter Singer on the philosophy of giving and charity. And we also did an episode with Helen Lewis um, on the artist Artemisia Gentileschi, which was very insightful for me. And you can find me on social media everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, as Linda Lannenbata. Then thank you for having me on the show. That's no problem. Thank you for coming. And so everyone, please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Be sure to email us because we want to hear from you. And also I will put Linda Lani's podcast in our show notes and we will see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. And a note, we are not mental health professionals. All opinions expressed on this podcast are our own. Our views and the views of any guests on our show cannot be construed as advice or should be used as medical recommendation. If you need help, please consult a licensed medical professional.